And this morning, as we look at this Sermon on the Mount, uh, touch our hearts and stir our hearts. We pray that you take your word and work it deep within us and that it may bear fruit in our lives as your word takes root in our hearts. So, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1,500 years previous to this Sermon on the Mount, the law of God was given to Moses on another mountain, Mount Sinai. And now here in chapter 5, on this mount, the Mount of Beatitudes, what it's called, it's a hillside in Galilee, Jesus is given this Sermon on the Mount. And last week as we began to look at it, we covered what was known as the Beatitudes. It's the Latin which means, oh, how happy. And Jesus, remember, as he's begun his public ministry at the end of chapter 4, there was great multitudes that are pouring now into the Galilee region, thousands of people on any given day. And he was healing them of every kind of sickness and disease and freeing the demoniacs. And we know that he had a message of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus would then, seeing the multitudes, would go up on the hillside, on the mount, which is called again the Mount of Beatitudes. And he would sit down and begin to teach his disciples. And he would say, blessed or how happy are, and then he would say, the poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and so forth. But where the blessing comes in is those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. And those who mourn, the blessing comes because they will be comforted. And those who are meek, the blessing comes where they will inherit the, the earth. And, and those who hunger and thirst, they will be filled. <clears throat> so we know that there's blessing in surrendering to the Lord and coming to him. And we also see and we read that he would say, blessed are those who revile and persecute you. Be exceedingly glad because great is your reward in heaven. And as Jesus continues this sermon, which covers all of chapters 5, 6, and 7, our Lord begins to tell us as his disciples how it is that we are to live. You're to be the salt of the earth. You're to be the light of the world. And let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And that's where we left off last time. So continuing with this Sermon on the Mount, verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teach them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness, verse 20, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So as the multitudes are making their way up the mountain to hear Jesus preaching and teaching, I'm sure that the Jews wanted to know where Jesus stood on the law and the prophets. And in verses 17 and 18 that we just read, we see these verses stress Jesus' relation to the law. And in verses 19 and 20, the disciples' relationship to the law. So Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law. He was not presenting a rival system to the law of Moses. He was not saying that murder is no longer the law or stealing. 
But as we continue through this sermon, we're going to see that Jesus begins to touch on the hearts of men. You see, the heart of the problem is the problem with the heart. The Bible says from the heart flows the issues of life. We read in Jeremiah just a few Wednesdays ago uh, in chapter 17 that the heart of man is desperately wicked. So here uh, he is saying, I came to fulfill the law, uh, a true fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets referring to the entire Old Testament. Now as we continue through Matthew, we will see that religious group, the Pharisees. Uh, the Pharisees who were dedicated to being religious to keeping of the law. And what they're going to do is they're going to accuse Jesus of breaking the law. And here Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law. I didn't come to break the law, but I came to fulfill the law. Jesus making that proclamation that he fulfills the law, he did it by, first of all, obeying it perfectly. He's the only one that has ever been born that lived a flawless, perfect life. And we remember that as his baptism that we saw in Matthew's gospel, that the voice of the father was heard saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus lived his life in perfect submission to the father, in obedience to the father, in perfect harmony with the father. He fulfills the prophets and he would uh, fulfill the, the prophet's prediction of the Messiah in his kingdom. Now, the apostle tells us, as, as most of us know, the Bible declares to us, when you read the book of Romans, when you read the book of Galatians, that we are all sinners. We fall short because we break the law. Uh, we can't be righteous in and of ourselves. We're all lawbreakers. Romans chapter 3 verse 10 declares that none is righteous, no, not one. And then in Romans chapter 7 verse 7, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. I would have not known covetousness unless the law has said you shall not covet. In other words, the law written on the tablets of stone, made it very clear that I break the law. I covet. Uh, I want their position. I want their possessions. I want their fame. Uh, I want that what they have. That is coveting. So Paul explains to us in Galatians that the law, there's nothing wrong with the law. Uh, the problem is with you and me. And the purpose of the law is to be a schoolmaster, that is a tutor, to drive us to the Savior, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law by keeping it perfectly. Jesus said, I always do the things that please the Father. So I didn't come to destroy or to weaken the law or bring a rival system, but rather I fulfill it. He fulfills the law in his life, but I also believe that he fulfills the law in his death. Because the Bible declares to you and to me that the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. The Bible declares to you and to me because of Adam's sin, sin and death has now come into the world to all of us. The Bible declares that the soul that sins shall surely die. And when Jesus Christ hung on that cross in place of you and in place of me, he was fulfilling the penalty that was required to be paid because of the violating of the law, the breaking of the law. So I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. 
the way that he lived. He lived a perfect life. The price that he paid on the cross and dying in place of you and me and bearing our sins upon himself. But also, I suggest, continually, because the Lord lives in our hearts. He lives in our hearts to help us to do righteously. And you see, not only did the law drive us to Christ, so too does the Sermon on the Mount as, as we are now guided in Christ. He says in verse 18, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or tittle will by no means pass from the law till it's all fulfilled. So Jesus is saying that all of the Hebrew scriptures is important. In verse 18, Jesus recognizes the authority of the scriptures. And in verse 19 that we read, he recognizes that we have a responsibility to obey the scriptures. Jesus wants us to know more of the glorious righteousness of God. Obey him and to share it with others, declare it with others. Jesus was asked one day, Master, which is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus would quote from the book of Deuteronomy. Matter of fact, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy uh, that we see in the Gospels more than any other book. Sometimes people say, oh, Deuteronomy, why should you read it? Well, Jesus knew it. He, he would quote it oftentimes. But as he quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he added, the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So a brief summary of the law and the prophets is this. What you are to do is you are to love God and you are to love others. Paul would say that love is the fulfillment of the law in Romans chapter 13, verse 10. And what follows now, what Jesus says now, the righteousness he demanded was not just external, but it is internal. We obey an internal law out of love for him and love for others. As he says, reading again in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. When Jesus said this, I'm sure that those who heard him, his disciples, but remember that the multitude is making their way up the mountain because at the end of chapter 7, when he concludes this sermon, the crowds are going to be astonished at his teaching. And Jesus is speaking to where others, I'm sure, are hearing him. And when they heard him say, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, they would be absolutely blown away by that. What do you mean that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? Because they are so righteous. The Pharisees who dedicated themselves to keeping all of the minute details of the law, as I've already said, and, and the scribes came along, they not only copied the law, but they would interpret the law and all the minute details and how to keep the law. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes became Pharisees. They said, we are going to dedicate ourselves to, to doing that. So what a tremendous shock it must have been to the disciples to hear Jesus say this. Because as far as they were concerned, no one was more righteous than a scribe or a Pharisee. Now remember that the scribes, the scholars who studied and interpreted, 
commented endlessly on the law. The Pharisees, there were 6,000 of them uh, in the nation in Jesus' day, dedicating their lives to keeping the, the details of the law. They were constantly displaying how righteous they were by the types of, uh, you know, robes that they wore and the phylacteries. They would pray on the street corners where everybody could hear them. Uh, they would blow the trumpets when they would give of their tithes. They even gave of their, you know, gar the seeds of their gardens. Uh, they would try to display to others a tremendous depth of righteousness in the things that they did. So externally, outwardly, they seemed so righteous, so good. No one could compare. And the people of Israel, the religious leaders, were so much focused on the external. But as we continue on, we're going to see that Jesus is going to focus on the internal, on the heart. So our relationship as believers to the law, the law drives us to Christ we realize God's standard. We can't measure up to it. We'll, we're all lawbreakers. We need the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. The law directs us in Christ. The Apostle John would write in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. It is a way to experience that abundant life that he has for you and for me. And his commandments are not burdensome. That's important for us to understand, that his commandments are good for us. They are an expression of his love for you and for me. You see, the Lord is not trying to make our lives sour and dour and a drag. But he doesn't want us to be in bondage to sin. Because sin will lead you and me down a road that we don't want to go. He wants us to experience true freedom and joy and peace and happiness. The best way to live. To, to live in a way that our closeness and intimacy and relationship with Jesus is flourishing and growing. So our relationship to the law, it drives us to Christ. It directs us in Christ. But listen, it is done in Christ. Your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So how can we do this? They would wonder. And we know that it is done through Christ dwelling in our hearts, through the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the religious leaders tried so hard to be religious in their own efforts and energies and in their rituals, and Jesus said they have failed. Matter of fact, we will see later on in Matthew that Jesus will say, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like uh, whitewashed tombs, uh, externally, you're, you know, polished on the outward, but inwardly you're full of dead man's bones. It was more than just the outward expression of righteousness, trying to be holy, trying to be spiritual, but it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul writes in Galatians 2. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We know that Paul would write in, in Romans chapter 10 concerning his countrymen, and they being ignorant of God's righteousness... And seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That is faith in Jesus Christ. So it is Christ living in my heart, working in me. 
And now we're going to see that Jesus is going to be dealing with the internal condition of the hearts. And it will remind us how we need Jesus working in us, working through us, empowering us. He tells us how we can become more righteous. Uh, Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. To call somebody Raka is calling them empty-headed. You're calling them an idiot. You're expressing contempt for someone's intelligence. To call somebody a fool and remember that Jesus in the context here, he says, without a cause. Now the Bible talks about the fool in Proverbs a lot and doesn't have anything positive to say about the one who's living foolishly. But you're calling them, you know, an idiot. You're calling them uh, in names. Uh, You're calling them a fool without a cause because it's character assassination. You're attacking their character. Your words are like a knife that is slicing through that person. You're angry at them. And John would write in 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So John emphasizing in his epistle that we're called to love, the love that God works in our hearts to keep us from hating our brother, being unforgiving and bitter and calling them names. It shows a sinful heart. We continue in verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. When you are at the altar, that is, you're in a place of prayer and praise And then you remember that your brother has something against you. Then go and get things right with them, with her, with them. You need to reconcile with them. More than just performing some religious duty. Now a couple things about this verse. Jesus again emphasizing the issues of the heart. Does this verse mean that I should track down every person who has something against me or I offended or made mad, or hurt in my life, for some of us, that would take a while. For some of us, that would be impossible. I don't think that uh, there's any way that I can look at my life and go back and find everybody that has something against me, or I offended, or perhaps hurt in life. You know, I can't go back and, and try to track down little, you know, Heather and little Julie that I pushed down in second grade in a pile of leaves, and they started crying, you know, and all of this. We can't do that. I don't think that Jesus is saying that we need to dig up a bunch of old hurts and a bunch of stuff um, that we had with others that, happened maybe years ago when we were a child or whatever. And I don't think that this applies when you stand for righteousness sake. In other words, I'm going to live for Christ. I'm not going to compromise and people get mad. People get mad at you or they're upset at you. And why don't you join us in going out and partying and all of this? The religious leaders were mad at Jesus. He didn't apologize for that. He stood for righteousness. 
He did what the Father wanted him to do. I think here's the key in applying this verse and understanding this verse. It's found where Jesus says, you bring your gift to the altar and then remember that your brother has something against you. In other words, you're in that place of prayer and devotion to the Lord and the Lord begins to speak to you. Hey, this person, you offended. You need to get it right and extend yourself to that person. Then come back and extend yourself to me. But I I don't think it's, you know, you have to now track everyone down that you sin against. If the Lord lays somebody on your heart that maybe years back that you did offend, then then the Lord speaking to you, do that. But we know that Jesus, he didn't, you know, go to the religious leaders and and try to to make things right with them. He, He loved them. He reached out to them. He gave truth. But they ended up wanting to kill him. I think Jesus remembers being very practical here. You know you need to get things right with someone because you perhaps are angry at them or offended them or hurt them, um, said things uh, to, to strike against them. Uh, you're resentful at them or maybe perhaps uh, that they're offended by you. The Lord's dealing with our hearts here. And agree with your adversary quickly, verse 25, while you're on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. And surely I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. So today in our country, if you have something against someone, you know, you sue them. You take them to court. The plaintiff is the person who's been offended. The defendant is the person who allegedly has done the offending. Now, in the legal system in Israel's day, remember, there's no police force. It was different. Um, If you were the plaintiff, uh, then you had to go and track down that defendant and bring your case before the judges. So Jesus is saying, when your adversary finds you and wants to take you before the judge, while you are on the way with him, then agree with him. That is, Jesus is saying, quickly settle the matter. Get it right. Do what is right. Because if it goes before the judge, you may be thrown in prison until you pay the last penny. But if you are in prison, you don't make any money. It is hard to pay it back. And you're going to be there for a long time. So the point that Jesus is making, if you don't settle things, you run away from it, you avoid it, you turn away from it. You had opportunity to deal with the situation or the individual, but you're choosing not to then what can happen is you become, you know, in bondage to it and the situation drags on and then it's very difficult and more difficult to solve that situation. So Jesus is telling us to be very practical here, not just dealing with anger in our hearts, but also our hearts being humbled. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I say to you, Jesus, speaking with authority, you look at another with lust, you're guilty of adultery. The desire of the heart constitutes guilt before the eyes of the Lord. The religious leaders would come along and say, I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. Jesus is saying, oh, yeah? What's in your heart? What, what's in your heart? Externally, you haven't, but... But what about your heart? Have, have you been angry with somebody without a cause? Have you lusted after another? Then you are guilty. In verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it 
from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, let me tell you what Jesus is not telling us to do. He's not saying that if you sin with your eye, look at something or someone with lust, that you get a ballpoint pen and pluck your eye out. Or you sin with your hand, that you take a hatchet and cut off your hand. And I mention that because I want to make sure, and I think as we know this, that Jesus is not talking about mutilating uh, your body. Uh, besides, if you plucked out one eye, you have another eye to sin with. If you chop off one hand, you still have another hand to sin with. What Jesus is saying to us, if there is sin in your life, then deal with it radically, serious, seriously, directly, because it's destructive. And that is the attitude that we should have against sin. We should hate sin. We should not have a heart to, to, to sin that we should look at sin and know that it breaks the heart of God. If you have a problem with lust, then deal with that, which causes you to sin. If you're pulling up things on the computer, you know, on social media, uh, on your, you know, uh, tablets, on your phones, it's so easily accessible, it's all around us, um, then you need to get rid of it. You need to deal with it. It's destroying people's lives. It's destroying our country, pornography, how easily accessible it is. And it's everywhere. It's even a big problem in the church. Jesus is saying that if there's things in your life, not only in what you're looking at, but activities that you're involved in, things and places that you're going that's leading you to be carnal, to be sin, deal with it radically, immediately. Don't let it continue. Because if you do, then it will eventually do you in and it will wipe you out. The ministry of Ezra in the Old Testament. Ezra who came back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. In Ezra chapter 7 verse 10 it says that Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. And to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Ezra being a priest and a scribe prepared his heart to seek the Lord, he was one that sought the Lord in prayer and fasting. And we see that displayed in his life as we do look at his life in the book of Ezra. He sought the Lord with his heart. And as a result of that, he was able to do the law and then teach it. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is showing us, that we seek the Lord with our hearts then we will be able to deal with the anger and the bitterness towards someone else. We'll be able to deal with the lust in our hearts. But it comes by preparing and seeking the Lord with all of our hearts. Because we can't deal with the issues that Jesus is talking about in our own efforts, our own fleshly you know, you know, efforts, our own energies. It has to be a work of God in our hearts, a work of the Holy Spirit. And then as we finish this morning, furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except for sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So in Jesus' day, there was two camps of thoughts on the issue of divorce. There was the teaching that was more conservative from the conservative um, rabbis that said that 
um, divorce, um, that on the basis of Deuteronomy chapter 24, divorce could be granted in the case of uncleanness, and they said that was immorality or adultery. Now, the more liberal teaching uh, said that uncleanness was much broader than simply immorality. But the husband could basically determine what was uncleanness. My wife made me mad. She made a dinner I didn't like. She, you know, did this or that. And it was because of your action, wife, that, that you made me to sin or uh, whatever the case may be. And that constitutes reason to divorce her. And it sounds ridiculous, but that was the teaching that was going on of the more liberal side of some of those rabbis. So the conservative teach, teaching um, said that a certificate of divorce must be given. Uh, the more liberal uh, teaching said a husband can simply look at his wife and say three times, I divorce you. So like today, what was happening is divorce was occurring uh, for the most frivolous reasons. Matter of fact, uh, uh, Alfred Edershine, who is a, a Jewish scholar, believer, um, in his book, he, he was writing, I remember, that some of the Pharisees that held to the more liberal, um, you know, uh, teaching that you can divorce your wife for any reason, that they were married several times, uh, some of them 10, 20 times. And it was interesting to read that. But Jesus is getting back to the original intent of the law here. And Jesus is going to talk more about this issue of divorce and remarriage later in Matthew. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. But I want to say this as we close. That Jesus says that if you divorce for any reason except for sexual immorality, they commit adultery. If they remarry, they commit adultery. Some people don't like that. But those are the words of Jesus. They're not my words. And, and Jesus is making it very clear. But I also want to emphasize this that he did not say that you live in adultery. This verse does not imply that if a person divorces and remarries, he or she live in adultery. But God is given, listen, his heart here on divorce. If divorce and remarriage occur, you you know, have missed the best that God has intended. And that is for one man and one woman to remain married until death separates them. God's heart is that that marriage remain or be restored. And if it doesn't happen, then you miss the best that God has. And Jesus says in the case of divorce, except for the case of sexual immorality is, is adultery and remarriage is adultery. Now, in the case where divorce has occurred, is there redemption? You bet there is. Is there forgiveness? Absolutely. And God forbid that any of us should say all manner of sin is forgiven except for one divorce. That's not what the scripture says. He says all manner of sin is forgiven except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's a rejection of Jesus Christ in your life. And in the church, we need to be careful that first of all, we don't take divorce lightly. And that marriage is something that God sees as remaining until death do you part. What God has joined together, Jesus said, let no man put asunder. But if divorce does happen, uh, not to look at divorced people as leprous and to make them feel alone because we have all sinned. And that's what Jesus is saying in this Sermon on the Mount. That we all have, have failed in our hearts. 
And we're all sinners, and Jesus Christ died for us, murderers and adulterers and divorced people, and whatever it is, we've offended others. That's the good news, isn't it? That we can go to the cross of Calvary and plead the blood of Jesus Christ. And forgetting those things which are behind, moving forward to those things which are ahead, I, I move, I press on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, Father, we thank you so much for this Sermon on the Mount and this teaching. I, I thank you that, that we are here and we can continue to hear the Word of God. And these things, the Sermon on the Mount, is something more than just to agree with. But, Lord, we need you to work these things in our lives for you to change our hearts, to minister to our hearts. And Lord, as you dwell in our hearts, to give us the power to live for you. I do pray, Lord, that uh, we would be ones that we desired, Lord, to live for you and to know that every one of your commandments is an expression of your love because you love us so much. And I thank you that we can read your word and see how we can live rightly. But Lord, we do need you. And I just pray for those who are listening right now that, that Lord, perhaps are struggling with sin and carnality. And maybe this situation over the last couple months and there's more of a temptation to, to pull up things on the computer that shouldn't be or carnal thoughts or to be angry. Lord, to tempt it, to try to do things on our own. But Lord, that we would stay committed to you and surrender to you in every way for time for us to draw close to you. Father, I just pray that we would just grow in the love and grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, loving God and loving others. I also want to pray if there's anyone who by chance is listening, that you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Listen, we've all sinned, and the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news, because we're all born sinners. We've all committed sin, and the soul that, that sins will surely die. But here's the good news. Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, fulfilled the law. That He went to the cross and fulfilled the law by dying in place of you. He loves you. That's why he came, to take care of the sin problem. And on that cross, he cried out, it is finished, as he took all of your sins upon himself and made atonement for your sin. And then he was put into a grave and he rose again. The tomb is empty. Listen, no other religious leader did that. Only Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is able to forgive sin. He's the true way to life. He's the true truth. And no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. Will you come to him to be forgiven and receive eternal life and have reconciliation with the Father? There's no other salvation. It's not in yourself. It's not in a church. It's not in anyone else. Only Jesus Christ and faith in him. Will you come to him this morning? Today is the day of salvation. That's good news and, and the light that we can bring to you in the darkness that we're in. Will you come to Jesus to receive life, eternal life and forgiveness? Call out to him right now. Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. I confess that I am a sinner. Forgive me. 
I believe you rose again. You're speaking to my heart. And I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for dying for me and for this new beginning. I thank you for your love for me, bringing me into the family of God in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, will you please get a hold of us or email us? We want to follow up and bless you. And for all of us, Lord, I just pray that as people, that as we're navigating through this difficult time, that you would provide. And I know a lot of families and people have sacrificed so much. Lord, that, that as we go through a time of uncertainty, that we know that you are our certainty and stability. You're our truth. I do pray that we can meet soon to be able to, to, to be together and do it safely. But in the meantime, I pray for your hand of protection upon everyone, and upon the families. And Lord, that this would be not a summer where we look at it as, Lord, just dry and hot, but Lord, a summer of growth and refreshment. We don't look at this as just trying to survive as a church or as a family, but to revive. Revive our hearts in you, Lord, because you have a plan and you're still on the throne. You're so faithful. You're so good. Your love remains. Your promises are still true. So we look forward, Lord, to when we do gather together. Guide us and direct us in every way. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Wednesday night, the book of Jeremiah. Join us at 7 o'clock. Remember that.